0: to this week's A Photographic Life. You may notice my voice is even deeper this week than in previous episodes. That's due to a week of returning to lecturing, speaking out in large echoey rooms, Uh, also preparing and presenting papers. Combine that with a touch of uh, flu and you've got what you can hear today. But never mind, we march on I was watching a short film on the British designer and architect, uh, John Pawson, the other day. Uh, I've always been, uh, I suppose, intrigued by Pawson in his minimalist outlook. I I think most photographers and designers have a tendency towards being maximalists, uh, collectors, magpies of uh, creative eye candy. But anyway, Pawson doesn't do that. He's a minimalist. Uh, If you're not aware of him, as always, check him out. There's a very interesting book on his photography, actually. But anyway, um, so I was watching this film when he quoted uh, another architect, uh, Louis Kahn. Uh, The quote made me look further into Kahn. Because I'm not an architect, I haven't studied it, I wasn't aware of him. And I found this. The sun never knew how great it was until it hit the side of a building all material in nature the mountains and the streams and the air and we are made of light which has been spent on this crumpled mass called material casts a shadow and the shadow belongs to light he also said what is made by light casts a shadow and the shadow belongs to light light has not just intensity but also a vibration which is capable of roughening a smooth material or giving a three-dimensional quality to a flat surface. More and more, so it seems to me, light is the beautifier of the building. Well, this instantly, of course, I suppose, made me think of photography – I cannot count the amount of times when I've arrived to do a shoot and we're using natural light where the person who perhaps is being photographed or uh, the stylist, the makeup artist, whoever it may be, said, look, it's a, a bright, sunny day. It's perfect for photography. Of course, I then have to say, well, actually, it's not for me. God's light for me, and that's what I call natural light, is God's light. That's not from a religious perspective. It just seems to be a nice, easy way of explaining it. Um, But the best for me is flat light. On a day which is cloudy, which provides a gigantic soft box. I love that kind of soft light. But of course, it would be ridiculous to think about photography and not to think about light. I return again to something else I found that Khan had said. A space can never reach its place in architecture without natural light. Artificial light is the light of night expressed in positioned chandeliers, not to be compared with the unpredictable play of natural light. The places of entrance, the galleries that radiate from them, the intimate entrances to the spaces of the institution form an independent architecture of connection. The structure is a design in light. The vault, the dome, the arch, the column are structures related to the character of light. Natural light gives mood to space by the nuances of light in the time of the day and the seasons of the year as it enters and modifies the space. That really appealed to me. There was so much in there. I thought, yeah, this is good stuff. This is a way in which I think, in a way, I wish some photographers spoke about light. I'm not a photographer personally who uses artificial additional lighting. I did at the beginning of my career, sort of 20 odd years ago when I used to work in studios. But I rapidly found the whole process to be limiting in the relationship I was having with the person primarily in my case. And I love that fact of light moving and changing and creating the picture with me and working with that light, rather than trying to create light that works. Each to his own, of course. I often say that interiors photography, at its best, at its best, I should say, is more than a document of soft furnishings, paint colours and wallpapers. It is, in fact, a narrative document of spaces, juxtapositions, textures, and of course light. Perhaps that's where there is this meeting ground between light and architecture and photography. The reality is that most of our photography does involve architecture. This week we welcome to the podcast Dylan Marsh, who's a South African photographer who currently lives in Cape Town, the city of his birth. Surrounded by the breathtaking landscapes of his native country, he developed a deep appreciation for the natural world at an early age. This has inspired his artistic practice, leading him to explore the tenuous relationship between humans and the world we inhabit. The range of subjects he focuses on is varied, from macro photos of seeds that hitch rides using hooks and barbs, to aerial photographs of giant patterns ploughed along the desolate west coast of South Africa. His practice has also seen him explore termite mounds in Gaborone and the snow-covered peaks of the Renzori Mountains. However, He is perhaps best known for his series, For What It's Worth, in which he combines photography and computer-generated elements to examine the impact that the mining industry has had in his home country. Marsh has exhibited his work internationally and is currently working on several new projects, I should say, that he plans to publish as books. I'm just going to have a sip of coffee to help my throat
1: whilst we listen to Dylan. (sighs) Hi, my name is Dylan Marsh, and this is a brief description of what photography means to me. I can trace my interest in photography back to my childhood and to the endless hours that I spent creating super realistic paintings. Uh, These were paintings that were based off of National Geographic photos and the like. Later I would also produce surrealistic paintings, but again I would try to replicate the realistic aesthetics of photography in these. It was always clear to me that I wanted to be an artist, and from an early age, it was an important means for me to establish self-worth. I am quite a shy and reserved person, and I don't typically like being the centre of attention. This means that by creating artworks that gain recognition, I can then feed off that a little bit and feel somewhat fulfilled. As a result of the paintings that I did, I got accepted into an undergraduate fine art degree and it was only then that I really started to critically examine exactly what my interests were. This led me to realise that it was photography and not painting that appealed to me most. Uh, Relatively speaking, photography is such an immediate and effortless image creation tool. It is also a fantastic tool for creating order from chaos. I am a keen observer of the world around me but I often feel quite overwhelmed when trying to process everything in real time. By taking a photograph, I'm able to freeze moments, and this allows me to scrutinize time and space at leisure. Another inherent property of photography is the way in which it reflects reality. Uh, To this end, it has been a superb tool for photojournalism and record keeping, for instance. Um, I've made use of this in my early work to showcase some strange features of the landscapes that surround me. These include things like unnaturally large birds' nests that are found on telephone poles and cell phone towers that have been disguised as trees. If it weren't for photography, I think I'd be hard-pressed to convince someone of the realness of these things. Now I'm sure you're all thinking that photography isn't always true to reality, and you would obviously be right. I worked for several years as a retouch artist, and I have personal experience of how photos are manipulated to warp reality. Um, despite this knowledge, I think our first instinct when seeing a photo is generally to take it at its face value. Now I think with the introduction of AI-generated photography, this may become a different story, but. AI art for me is more akin to digital dreams. It seems to bear no meaningful link to reality. And I think then photography still maintains its power because there will always be something of value in in a a medium that can represent reality in image form. Having said this, I've also exploited this expectation that photography represents reality. By combining photography and computer-generated imagery... I was able to create a series of images that show the total mass of resources extracted from various mines. Uh, This is obviously something that I would not be able to do with photography alone. Um, For instance, I would take a photograph of a copper mine and then I would use CGI to create a virtual representation of the total amount of copper extracted from it over its lifetime. This I would then composite back into the photograph of the mine using Photoshop um, and I would do so to create a seamless image that feels real. Uh, In my project description, I would explain that I've used CGI in the images, so I'm not necessarily trying to fully deceive the viewer, but my hope is that the images themselves instinctively come across as representing something real, because there's certainly a, a, a certain amount of power that comes with that. At times... I still feel like I'm a painter creating surrealistic scenes. The only real difference is that I'm using photography to make the process quicker and to lend a certain credibility to the things that I'm depicting. Uh, Thank you very much. That's it.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dylan, for your contribution this week. And if you're not aware of uh, Dylan's work, which I don't think I was, I'm, I always forget when or how I come across photographers, primarily because I might ask them months and months uh, in advance of them actually submitting a contribution, and I forget where I saw the work. I think it may have been thanks to uh, the great Ian Sargent at Another Place Press, but I might be wrong on that anyway. I think the most important thing is to check out his work, primarily because it really is doing a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast, which is exploring new ways of making and bringing them together with that idea, the idea, I should say, of traditional narrative storytelling. So check him out. I'm afraid I really am rather staggering through this uh, particular episode. I hope it's not... Um, Invading on your enjoyment of uh, what we're talking about and the material we're delivering, that I seem to be falling apart whilst I'm making it. But anyway, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, I suppose now, was uh, related directly to something that I was involved in uh, last week. And in a strange way, and as always, the synchronicity of chance, it connects with Dylan and Dylan's work because. I was involved in a paper uh, delivery a day of academic workshop, a conference, call it, I suppose, what you will. And it was called Photo Magazines Across the British Empire and Commonwealth 1930 to 1965. And it was hosted by the Tom Hopkinson Centre for Media History, uh, part of the School of Journalism at Cardiff University. So all a bit long-winded there. But what I really wanted to talk to you about was the nature of these kinds of academic conferences. Now, uh, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. I learned a huge amount of stuff that I have absolutely no knowledge of. It was free to attend. There was no problem. You just had to sign up through Eventbrite. And in return for that, you get uh, coffee, you get a sandwich lunch, and you get to hear from all these incredible experts. Now, The problem I think that these kinds of academic conferences have is particularly, is specifically, I should say that word academic, because I think at some, at some points, people can feel as if they're either not wanted to be there or they could be intimidated to be there. But actually, I think so many photographers would have benefited from it. I have to say that despite the fact that I have, uh, a PhD and I'm involved in academia and so forth and writing, I too feel rather intimidated uh, when I go to these things. I mean, it's no surprise, really, I suppose, when... uh, The chair was Professor Elizabeth Edwards, who's Professor Emerita of Photographic History, De Montfort University, Honorary Professor, University of Durham, Research Affiliate ISCA, University of Oxford, Professor Richard Vokes, Professor of Anthropology and International Development, University of Western Australia, Dr Christopher Morton, Associate Professor and Head of Curatorial Research and Teaching, Pitt Rivers Museum, University of Oxford, and so on and so on. Now, all these people were really nice and they were really friendly and they really wanted to share their knowledge. So where is the breakdown there? Well, I think the breakdown or I suppose the disconnect in a way is the fact that uh, academics are just not very good at promoting and marketing these things. So despite the fact of the quality of the material that was being delivered, there was only maybe 15 people in the room. And I think that's a real shame. Of course, you had to get down to Cardiff and so forth, and and that causes a problem. However, it would have been very easy for them to have live streamed this, as well as some of the speakers were zoomed in. Uh, Fantastically, actually, and I think for me, one of the most interesting talks was a friend of the podcast, Paul Weinberg, talking about the work of his good friend, David Goldblatt. So something there that I'm sure a lot of you listening to this podcast would immediately have connected with. So I suppose, where am I with this? Well, I don't really know, to be honest with you. I do wish that more photographers got involved with more of this kind of academic stuff. And I wish that more academics kind of made it known that they were doing this kind of work. All of the talks that were being given are appearing as books, but they're all books which are being published by university presses, a number of them in America, some in the UK. But they do then tend to have a very high price point, which again sort of prevents that from that connection being made. So, I saw a lot of great stuff. I saw a lot of great stuff and heard a lot of stuff that I can follow up on and I'll probably share with you anyway. Um, but I do, I suppose, in a sense, this is a call out to any of you academics who are listening to this podcast. Please don't ignore the photographic community because they're the very people that you're researching. I think that all of us, certainly many of us, will first have come across photography through magazines, and therefore, we've grown up to have a kind of an emotional attachment with magazines, specific uh, titles, perhaps, or the photographer's work who appeared in it. A lot of you listening will have gained your income from magazines and uh, relied upon editorial commissions. Well, I've spoken in previous episodes about the fact that I've been writing a book that comes out at the uh, end of February next year, uh, The Six Decades of Vogue House, which very much deals with uh, all of the magazines that came out of Vogue House in the UK, GQ, World of Interiors, Tatler, Vogue. Rides, uh, World of Interiors, as I said, House and Garden, and so forth. So, um, but the book is very much, sadly, a metaphor for what I see as the end of publishing. And I'm sure a lot of you who have been working in editorial will understand what I'm saying uh, when I talk about that. Well, just in the last week, um, the new editor of British Vogue has been announced, although it's not an editor. And when I'm talking about British Vogue, you may think I'm just talking about fashion. Of course, I'm not. It's got a rich history of food, still life, portrait and documentary photography. And so for me, it's an important platform for photography. Anyway, uh, what's happened is that the current uh, editor, Edward Edenfall, has uh, resigned, and he is going to be replaced not by an editor of the magazine, but by somebody who will have the title Head of Editorial Content. And I'm just going to read for you uh, the little bit of uh, text from the book here, which explains what's happening, because... I really think this is the end, or the beginning of the end, or maybe the end of the end, of printed magazines. The saddest outcome of this announcement was that it indicated the end of a publishing institution. There would no longer be an editor-in-chief of British Vogue. Instead, there would be a head of editorial content, a title that does not exist within the publishing world but which resonates clearly within multimedia offices. A fact and issue commented on by Alexander Shulman, the previous editor of Vogue in the Daily Mail. Whoever is bleakly titled editorial content director will have little, if any, autonomy and will report to a bureaucratic tangle of leads in New York. As we came to the end of the process of proofing this book, that person was announced. Chioma Nardi was perhaps not surprisingly the editor of usvogue.com before moving to British Vogue. The 44-year-old London-born journalist is the daughter of a Swiss-German mother who works as a nurse and a Nigerian father, both of whom moved to the UK in the 1960s. Nadi grew up in central London and started her career on the features desk at the Evening Standard magazine before she moved to New York and began working at independent style magazines such as Trace and at The Fader as a style director. In 2010, she joined Vogue and began working on the magazine's website, writing for the magazine and presenting its podcast. In a 2023 interview with The Garden, chief guardian I should say, she stated that her focus will be on digital storytelling and keeping Vogue interactive with readers. In a statement offered to the press on the announcement of her new position, she further indicated where her priorities would lie. I'm looking forward to engaging a loyal and inspired digital community that is energized by our access point of view and storytelling. In her own statement, Anna Wintour added that Nadi had proved herself as being adept at speaking to our digital audience and has found ways to extend Vogue's reach, authority and influence across all of our platforms. There was no mention of the importance of the printed magazine by either of them. Take care.